Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Elk Shape Podcast number five uh, with me, Dan Staten, and today's guest is Joe Roeder uh, out of Ellensburg, Washington, we'll say. Um, I don't know much about Joe. You guys are going to learn about him with me, but uh, we have a mutual friend. And actually, my buddy uh, Josh Potter has been telling me about your escapades for quite a few years. And uh, all I know is that you, you get after it when it comes to elk hunting, public ground, and one of the, arguably one of the harder states to kill an elk, Washington State. And in the backcountry, you do it with a bow, and it's not a fluke. You do it year after year, Joe. So, Joe, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me so much, Dan. Appreciate it, and uh, appreciate what you do with Elk Shape for everybody, too. Well, right on, man. Um, Joe, as per usual, tell me and everybody else about you as much as you can. I mean, you know, how you got into hunting, what your day job is, just any good background information to start off with. Uh, well, we'll start with kind of a hunting pedigree, uh, which is extremely humble. Uh, I grew up in Eatonville, Washington which is right at the foot of Mount Rainier on the southwest corner. So I, I grew up, fortunately, in pretty great elk country. Uh, a lot of elk uh, kind of to our south, because it be southeast, like Randall, Washington, and then uh, just outside Mount Rainier National Park, and you know not far from the Goat Rocks Wilderness. Um, my first wilderness hunts were in the Goat Rocks. And uh, I grew, grew up in great elk country. In fact, I could hunt right from my back door, um, which wasn't not great elk hunting right out the back door, but I grew up adjacent to big blocks of state timberland, and uh, we'd have elk there from time to time. So starting about 14, I got to carry a bow in the woods. You know, no parents, no adults, just got to go roam. I could mountain bike right from my house, uh, you know, and chase elk. Uh, didn't have a lot of success. Uh, finally killed a I guess I killed a cow elk when I was 14 and then another one when I was 16. And then I just, I tried to pursue bull elk and, you know, it had very little success. Uh, just really tough time doing it and, uh, really struggled for a lot of years. And then, 
you know, finally I, I, uh, I started elk hunting. I don't even know what year it was, like in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, finally in like 2002, I killed my first bull, which was a, you know, do-it-yourself, backcountry, public land bull, you know, wilderness bull. And, you know, from that point forward, I was just hooked and, and finally felt like I kind of had a, a more of a system, you know, it was more fair, um, where you put in X amount and you can expect X amount back uh, in return versus I'd grown up hunting a lot more of the, you know, hopscotch and private land and gosh, you'd bump into a fence and of course the bull's bugling on the other side of the, the fence and, you know, it's kind of a waiting game and there's a lot of chance. So, uh, killed my first bull on a, a wilderness hunt, uh, with my good buddy, Jeremy. And, uh, he, he was unable to get an elk, but that was like our first real true backcountry hunt, uh, together. And we were just hooked from that point. And, uh, just kind of the rest is history. Um, you know, I'm a stay at home guy on Washington state. Uh, I've got three kids that are, you know, approaching their teenage years now. So they're in sports and, They've got their own agendas, and frankly, uh, I work as a guide and outfitter, so I don't make a, enough, I'd say, discretionary income to to warrant going out of state because I can do it once. But you know, going out of state and, and tag fees and travel costs and time away from work and stuff adds up. So I've always been under kind of the the strategy that if I discover things in my home state, I can hopefully, uh, with the exception of drawing, you know, more premium tag. I can capitalize on that until year after year after year. And, you know, hopefully at the end of, you know, after 10 or 15, 20 years, you've learned enough to, to make good choices and put yourself in a situation of success. Whereas, you know, if I cruise across the country to, you know, Montana or something, I, I can't necessarily do that every single year. And, uh, I, I make some good gains here that I can, I can capitalize on. Wow. Okay. So when you're not hunting, what's your real life look like? Uh, well, I'm, the main the main focus of what I do is I'm a fly fishing guide and outfitter. Um, I've been doing that for, gosh, 18 years now. And uh, I went to college at Central Washington University in Ellensburg, the Wildcats. Uh, but I went to college here and worked as a guide when I was in college and never thought I'd end up doing it for a job. I graduated with a degree uh, essentially with natural resource management skills and background, and that's kind of where I thought I would go. I fought forest, fire, uh, forest fires for a couple of years, and... Got bored of that uh, after a couple of years flying around on helicopters, fighting fires uh, for our state ENR. And while that was great, uh, I really wanted to go be a guide. Wound up being a guide in college, got done with college. And uh, my sweetheart still had a year to finish up before she graduated, so I just kept guiding. And uh, she finally got done. And then neither of us wanted to move from Ellensburg. So we just love it here. And uh, <laughs> so I just kept guiding. And uh, you know, somehow I was able to turn it into a career and take my, you know, equivalent passion just for fly fishing and being out on big, you know, fishing big Western rivers. Uh, I was able to, to take that passion and combine it with a passion just for business leadership and, uh, have been able to, to establish a, you know, a stable career as a guide. And now, at, you know, Red's Fly Shop and Canyon River Ranch Resort, we do we dabble in hunting quite a bit too, primarily bird hunting, some deer hunting. I get to guide bighorn sheep once in a while, uh, trips, depending on if guys that get the permit want some help or not. But we do a little bit of everything here. And, uh, you know, we do e-commerce. Uh, I travel pretty much all over the world hosting and coordinating fly fishing trips. So this year I'll go to Cuba, Russia, Mexico, uh, British Columbia, uh, go 
all over the place just doing fishing trips and putting trips together for guys. And so I get to play pretty hard. I'm very, very fortunate. Wow, that sounds like a sweet gig. So it's not bad. It's not too bad. Uh, and that's something that <laughs> you started and you own um, by yourself? No, I'm a small partner in the business. It's, uh, you know, I, you know, we, we haven't compared notes, but I think it's the probably the biggest fly fishing outfitter in the Northwest, if not, you know, the entire West. Uh, we're really fortunate to have a really unique location in the Akamar River Canyon, where we have a very large fly shop that we ship stuff all over the world. Uh, so we have a really unique location, so it gives us a ton of fishing experience because we can do all sorts of different species here in Washington State because it's so diverse, from steelhead to salmon to bass. Uh lots of experience and so that gives us a kind of a marketing edge i'd say against a lot of competitors so yeah we get to do a lot of unique things here on this property and i'm just a small partner in it but we have a large resort and a lodge and uh we have you know a bird hunting uh bird hunting game preserve i guess you will sporting clay course 3d archery range we we do a lot of stuff here at the resort but i'm a partner in that that's cool that you have a stake in the business that's awesome and it's super motivating to have like a chunk of the ownership and have a say and the vision and, and build it from the ground up. Sounds like, and man, pretty exciting traveling the world and, and the e-commerce as well. That's awesome. I will tell you this. Um, there's a common denominator with a lot of guys that kill elk on the public ground side, and it seems to be autonomy in their schedule. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is how much time do you allocate for elk hunting? Like when the season starts, because Washington has, notably a very small window of archery season i know you're a bow hunter so uh is that is that what you take the whole season and go um like how much time do you allocate for your hunt yeah so i mean of course it starts you know naturally it's year round um so the hunt you know we i have a philosophy the hunt begins before the hunt begins and uh you know yeah i I laugh because it's like you don't want to give away all the trade secrets, right? But I've just gained so much information from guys like Elknut and, you know, you or, or any guys that are willing to share information. But for me, I, I think if you, don't, if you don't have a really good idea of where you're going to be on open, if you're not listening to bugles in the dark on opening morning, you didn't do your homework. Uh, so I'm starting really hard in July, August, September, you know, early September, even I'm trying to scout really hard. I'm getting into the mountains two days before the season. Uh, I'm going to take probably and hunt the first five and then put some flex room in the middle of the season for catching up on work, seeing the uh, kids soccer games, that kind of stuff, returning emails, you know, being domestic responsibilities are, are critical. If you ever want freedom and hunting, you better get your personal life straight and make sure that's taken care of. Same with work life. But I throw about four days in the middle uh, that are flex time. Uh, we might kill a bull early in the season, or we might get snowed out, rained out. Uh, something might cause me to, to need to you know retreat. And if we get horrible weather, I don't care how tough you are, there's times you're going to get weathered out of the mountains and the Cascades. Um, the freezing rain and snow mix we get, it can be brutal in September. And uh, I bivy hunt primarily. Um I do employ a, a wet weather camp sometimes, but if we're Vivian, you know, we may need to retreat, you know, from time to time. So uh, with those four flex days in the middle, if I got to go in for three and come out for a day or two, dry out, recharge, uh, and then go back in, I can. So I throw four flex days in the middle and then 
I'll usually hunt four on the end. So I'll hunt nine to 10 days of actual season typically. And then, uh, a day or two on the front. I want to be in the woods early. Uh, I want to be in the woods early. I want to find the elk before, you know, before daylight on opening morning. Yeah. I really like what you said. If you don't know or have bulls bugling in the dark opening day, you didn't do your homework. I think that's, that's the coolest, that's a cool statement. And it's so factual. Um, well then let's set the stage for, I mean, we're going to backfill with what you do year round. Cause that's why I have you on. I know you have an awesome work ethic and I love that. Um, but let's paint a picture for those that don't know you and don't, and, and me included, tell us a little bit about what your hunting style is, the terrain. Obviously we don't want to give away where you hunt. You made that super clear to me. I'm pumped. I, I respect that, but give our listeners kind of a snapshot as to what, you know, altitude or what kind of terrain, what kind of country, are you hunting out of your backpack? Are you spike camping? How far hiking? How many miles do you cover a day or a week? I mean, let us kind of get an idea of how physical and daunting your hunt is. Uh, you know, it's when I was in my twenties, you know, I didn't realize how bad a shape I was in. And, uh, I'll tell the story. I mean, I've got so many stories of failure, but, uh, I hiked into an area, um, and, you know, we, I might hunt anywhere from two or three miles from the pickup to as much as 15. It ranges a lot, you know, and it sounds like a long ways in, like, wow, you're 15 miles in. It's a handful of hours of just walking. It really isn't, you know, when you, when you weigh it out, you just take one step at a time. It's, it's not that big a deal, but if you, I've learned to pace myself a little bit more too. I'm 38 years old now, and uh, I'm using my energy more wisely, but I hiked in six miles day before season, uh, and it was getting to be in the afternoon and I, I just crushed it going in. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get in there with plenty of time to scout, etc." Of course, I walked myself into the ground. I was in my mid twenties and, uh, I got in there and I remember looking for a place to camp that was, you know, flat enough to sleep. And I'm like, Oh, well, here's a spring. I better get some water. And I start pumping water and uh, I look up on the hill while I'm pumping water and just randomly, like an acting hob, this big, great big bull. I mean, it had to, you know, it was definitely a mature six by six, just is watching me pump water. And uh, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, there's a huge bull right there. And I'm just pumping water. And I don't really know what to do. It's the night before season, you know, and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get him for sure. And uh, I was by myself and uh, bull walks away, not really alarmed. It was pretty shadowy. I didn't know that he was really spooked and uh, walks away. So I'm like, okay, great. I'm on it. You know, I'm going to sleep right here. I think I probably slept on a bunch of rocks or something because I was so excited and I didn't really want to move around much with the bull there. So I slept somewhere, typically a very uncomfortable spot. Yeah. Uh, and I hunt the next day, which was opening day. And I, I hunt a, a pretty good sized loop and I got to about one or two in the afternoon and I hadn't heard a bugle, I hadn't seen an elk, and I hunted the bottom of this basin, and I, I ended up, you know, I, I, you know, like a lot of guys, I read Cameron Haynes' book, Backcountry Bow Hunting, when it hit the press, you know, press, I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s, something like that. But he had a quote in there that's always stuck with me, uh, that it's easy to spin foibles into fables. And to me, that is like, those are words of gold, because uh, that's exactly what happened to me. I had this giant bull in this basin, and just because I couldn't find him opening day, I was like, oh, the rut's not on, he left the basin, you know, you just make up all this stuff, and the fact is, you're just tired, exhausted, and you're uninspired, and I ended up walking out that afternoon of opening day to think I was going to find a new area, oh. and 
because it was an unproven spot for me, but I'd seen a bull there. And I know that I just tired myself out way too much going in, going way too hard the first day, got exhausted. And I have never forgot that because I was younger then and I'd only killed like a bull or two at that point. And I, I, that has stuck with me always to, you know, be mentally grounded and tough and not spend foibles into fables just because they're not bugling now doesn't mean they want tomorrow morning or tonight. You know, I've had, I've had hunts change, you know, momentum in, in a matter of seconds, you know, where no bugles for two days, you know, I don't hunt areas with, with high elk, you know, populations typically, uh, you know, no elk for two days, you get a big response, you know, 45 seconds later, you know, you see that, that rack floating through the timber, and uh, things change in a hurry. And uh, so to me, that's been one of the you know memory that sticks with me. But as far as like ground that we hunt, it's, uh, you know, I hunt the Cascades, uh, big high steep ground. Typically, elk are going to be found, you know, two thirds to three quarters of the way up the biggest, heavy, most heavily timbered slopes. I do surprisingly well on south facing slopes. I would say that's, you know, um, kind of a tidbit of information I found to be really helpful. Um, at least in Washington, everything's pretty damp. Uh, you know, in the Cascades, it's not like a lot of the other Western states that are much more arid where they have to have north-facing slopes, but the south-facing slopes are still damp enough and they get sun exposure and there's typically more heat. But we bivouac primarily. We, the last couple of years, we, we've gotten weathered so hard in some of the hunts we've done, my partner and I, that we finally got... Uh, uh, titanium goat brand TP and stove and now we set up a wet weather camp uh, so we we set that up and sometimes we don't see it the entire season we just set it up in a fairly strategic area I pack that in you know 10 days in advance either with my horses or backpacking in but there's been seasons, literally years that we've never used it and uh, we definitely used it this year because we got it horrifically horrific weather but most of the time dan we're we're moving real light you know real light and tight we've done different tent systems uh but we choose to just use a backpacker's tarp and nine by nine kelty uh noah's tarp they're 90 bucks i haven't found anything better yet we prefer just sleeping on the ground um in bivy sacks under a backpacker's tarp so that we get air circulation and we can eat dinner in our muddy boots and our wet rain gear uh you know whereas a tent you know, we're dragging muddy boots and wet packs and wet clothes and there. Inevitably, everything you need is outside the tent. <laughs> yep. um, just makes it easier to cook, get dressed, and everything else. And yes, you, it's, it can be pretty miserable when it's wet and breezy, but we tend to find that the fastest to set up. And we can, you know, we can set it on uneven ground and, and make do with that. So that's typically our system is moving every day. Uh, just a backpacker's tarp from Bibby Sacks. <clears throat> okay, so with your backpack system couple of nerd questions just obviously i want to know what backpack you're running and then you're you're in on some elk let's say in the evening you the advantage obviously is you don't got to pull out you can hunt till absolute last light and then i want to know do you kind of back out a little ways off the elk to camp or do you just set up shop wherever you left off and pick up in the morning and then obviously i'm thinking cascades lots of water everywhere but i could be dead wrong so water systems as well so backpack when do you, where do you sleep and how do you decide where to sleep and then water? Yeah, great question. So backpacks, you're going to laugh. Um, so I've got three different packs that I use just depending, honestly, kind of how I'm shooting with my pack on and, you know, what I'm bringing. But man, I've got this pack, this ancient Badlands 2800, not the one, you know, it's the oldest 2800 that ever made. 
And that's probably my favorite pack because it's got compatible wings. I pack hindquarters of bulls on it. It's got a lot of mojo. I've killed a lot of bulls wearing that thing. Um, I've sent it back to Badlands twice. and They've had to repair things on it, um, and they've been awesome. Like They get it back in like a week. It's scary, you know, how fast they get it done for me. Uh, but that's a Badlands 2800 because um, it's just incredibly uh, – you know, modular fuel. It's ancient. You know, I'm. You know, I invest a lot of good gear. I mean, we got the high end optics and boots and sick of gear and all that. But that pack has stayed with me for a long time, and I'm not in love with it. But I use it quite a bit. And then I use one from Wilderness Pack Specialties um, that I really like. Uh, they make some root. It's all made in the USA. They make some super hardcore packs. Uh, the Outdoorsman Pack System. I believe they do all the bags for the Outdoorsman style frame system. Um, which I've used the Outdoorsman uh, pack as well. I don't shoot as well with that one on. So depending on how you hunt with a trad bow um, as well. Um, I'm not all trad bow, but I, I killed my bow last year with a trad bow. And so my trad bow, I really I need the pack that has the most flexibility for me. Uh, but I use that Wilderness Pack Specialties pack. And then I have an old Sitka 45 uh, that I'm not in love with. The, I don't even think they make them anymore. I think they kind of gave up. I'm not in love with the yoke and how it handles heavy weight, but... I love all the pockets, <laughs> as yeah. corny as that sounds. Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm really comfortable with that. You know, if I'm, my pack weight, my wet pack weights, you know, in the high, mid to high 30s for like five days. And it just, it, it handles that weight really well. I don't like freighting on it, but I can get, you know, I can get, you know, hind quarter to the truck, you know, with that pack if I need to. But um, I run three you know, three packs, uh, just depending on, like I said, if I'm shooting my trad bolt, my compound, that makes a little bit of a difference as far as, uh, water and water systems go. There's water everywhere. You know, we, we in the Pacific Northwest, man, I mean, <laughs> there's water shooting out of the hill all over the place with the exception of some of the highest peaks that we might be on if we're trying to hunt, um, deer as well. But, uh, the, the water system that I use is I actually ran without water quite a bit this year. And literally I use an MSR trail shot, uh, water purifier that I can drink right out of. And I can literally just drink like every hour. If I can drink, depending on what I'm doing and how hot it is and stuff, that's obviously going to play a role, but I'll use that MSR trail shot to just drink as we go. Uh, and I can just drink pump straight in my mouth water get a belly full of water and move um but we iodine quite a bit just because it's fast as long as it's wet right um so yeah. i don't mind the taste of iodine it doesn't bother me at all uh, we iodine quite a bit if we're on elk and pursuing bugling bulls then i'll always water up because i can't stop to drink and the iodine has come in really handy to be able to just take a you know platypus fill it up through t- throw two tabs in and it's in my pack and like two minutes and tops from the time I drop my pack. And when I'm on bulls and bugling bulls, I always make sure when we initiate that pursuit or that game, don't want to stop for water. That's when I will absolutely make sure I'm watered up as more on bugling bulls. So that's kind of, you know, my water system, my pack. And then as far as sleeping on the elk, uh, you know, a lot of times we just don't have a choice. The timber's so thick and so heavy and we deal with a lot of blowdown that a lot of times you know, we're not going to get walked on, you know, meaning, you know, the elk aren't going to show up, you know, 30 yards from us and wind us in the middle of the night, you know, typically. So we'll back out a little bit, but we would much prefer, I would say you gain more by being within earshot of them than you lose by being too close. So if I'm weighing that out, uh, I'm probably sleeping a lot tighter to the elk than most people. You know, I don't know how many bulls, 
you know, it's been, but I've shot a handful of them, including, uh, the biggest bull I've killed, man, I shot it with, you know, uh, seconds of the shooting light left when you can hunt them until dark, 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 dark. That's a really real big benefit. In fact, I'll just share his hunting story. In 2012, I drew a, a great tag. Uh, in Washington, if you put in for some of the easier units, by the way, you can draw a tag on fairly good frequency. I think a lot of my friends put in for units that are a little more coveted, and I tend to draw a little bit more often. Yeah. So I'd rather I'd rather draw the marginal units and uh, work a little harder and get a tag at double frequency. But uh, we hunted this same bull. It was day four. And, man, we I'm not a bad elk caller. I'd say I'm above average. Um I grew up with Joel Turner. I think a lot of people know that, you know, he's great elk calling coach, two-time world champion. You know, I remember in 2009, Joel stopped by my house and gave me like, we spent about three hours in my garage. And, uh, I realized I was doing a lot of the elk calling, not just the strategies, but the sounds were backwards as far as their cadence and tone. And in 2009, he set me straight and started having a lot more success. But this was in 2012, and we tried to call this bull in, or these, this bull in for like three three days. And we had really good setups, and we sound really good, and everything's going great. And, you know, we felt like we created, you know, the appropriate situations for the bull to come in and just could not drag this big old nasty bull in. And on the, uh, I think it was the fourth, the evening of the fourth day, we were not hunting a long ways from the, the Jeep, but we... Uh, we, we decided, I think, for the second night in a row, even though we were only hunting a half mile from the road, we're like, we're throwing our sleeping bags in our packs. We're sleeping down there so that we can hunt to the last minute, and then we can hear where they're at. So we, we said, we're not calling, no matter how much this bull bugles, because there was a couple of bulls in there, and it was like World War Three every evening in there. We decided we weren't going to call until, like, dark. And uh, we sat there for like three hours listening to these bulls bugle at like 300, I mean, close, damn, like a couple hundred yards away. I mean, right there, right? I mean, you could practically hear them breathing and grunt and blunking. I mean, it was, we were tight on these elk. And I waited until about 10 minutes before it dark, I mean, to the point where it was going to be marginal. And then I moved in on that bull and uh, just imitated a, a, cow in, a cow in heat and a bull glunking and moved right in on that bull. And he came in, I mean, with it was heavy timber, so it was already pretty dark. But, I mean, I shot it, like, at dark, dark, dark. And uh, shot him at 11 yards. And uh, that bull ended up green scoring, uh, 365. Uh, I don't know what it, you know, didn't, you know, measured after the drying period or official or anything like that. Maybe it was only 360. I don't know. But it was a great big one. And, uh, yeah. anyway, I shot it at dark just from purely having the diligence to, even though it was a, a truck-oriented hunt, just having the diligence to throw the sleeping bag on the back and stay and hunt until after dark. Cause I, you know, I've hunted a lot of wilderness stuff and I would consider that one semi backcountry. I mean, we were sleeping, you know, had our sleeping bags on our backs, but that one had, I suffered more sleep deprivation and more exhaustion on that truck oriented hunt, uh, than I ever have on a bivy hunt. I think, I mean, it was, we were up at 3am, you know, trying to find, you know, bulls bugling and, and uh, trying to locate elk on that hunt, uh, and ended up working out. And then we shot a fantastic bull at you know at dark on day four. But uh, for me, that system of being able to hunt till dark has been critical. Yeah, I dig everything you're saying. And, and some of the herd bulls I've killed have been just straight up going for it, getting after it, 
because it's about to be dark. Like we're talking within 10, 15 minutes, but the wind is so damn predictable. It's coming straight down and you can get really aggressive. It's pretty fun hunting a big bull or sneaking in on him when the wind is in your favor and you know it's not going to get swirly. You know, you get some pretty, not always, but generally speaking, a lot of those last 10 minutes of light, that wind has got, you know, good odds that that wind's going to hold true. And then you can really do what you need to do. So that's awesome, man. Um, let's talk yeah. about, I want to learn a little bit more about how you closed the deal. Um, I did a little bit of cyber creeping or scouting on you. Um, but most of the pictures I've ever seen have been a text from our mutual friend before we met. And, and it would just be like, honestly, like, okay, who, who is this guy? Like, and just be like, I just get text. I think at least three, maybe four or five years to where I was like, okay, give me his number. I want to get to know him. Um, no joke. And, uh, Dude, you've killed a lot of big bulls, way more than your average guy. And my podcast is about shortening that damn learning curve that's so steep. So let's go next level and kind of give us like how you close the deal on elk, whether it's solo or if you have a calling partner, not how you find elk, but how you close the deal on elk once you found them. Yeah, I I subscribe pretty hard to Turner's, you know, BCC, um, in a bcc strategy the bull calling cow's bugle um you know i've had that work on a handful of occasions but you know it doesn't work every time you know typically if it's a satellite bull um you know we're we're using cow calls and uh you know i've probably failed a lot you know i've certainly failed a lot more than i've succeeded and i think i've learned a lot more retrospectively on you know less calling more situation you know like breaking sticks being noisy Elk are typically movers. They don't call from their beds. Um, so I move quite a bit while I'm calling to create uh, the idea of an elk moving. I shot a bull in 2009, fantastic bull, and uh, it was solo. Um, I've been by myself on a, oh, half of my, oh, maybe half my elk I've called in myself. I've had partners with me. Uh, but this particular bull, I was trucking along just doing my locate bugle thing, and uh, it was so distant that I thought it was a bird and I was like, man, that's a bird. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I get a little, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of angle down the hill. I'm like, that's gotta be a bird. It was like noon, you know, like shouldn't have been a bull bugle at that time of day. Anyway, and, uh, here's the bull bugling. And finally I, I moved down on it and, uh, I try to get to where, you know, obviously I play the wind, but I'm okay with the crosswind. Um, I read an article years ago, you know, as I've just, I try to soak up everything else cutting I can and, the writer um, proposed that, you know, a crosswind is typically better because the bulls are going to be more confident um, when it's a direct, you know, they don't like walking directly with the wind. So a crosswind is okay with me. And I remember getting a crosswind and uh, it was the first time that I remember uh, in my young bow hunting career, I guess, I remember really thinking about the setup and the terrain. Um, you know, I always want some type of topo feature. Uh, you know, that the bull has to come close enough in order to see the calling location. And that also allows me to be a lot more nimble and maneuverable uh, if I need to make adjustments as I hear the bull approaching. Um, so if he doesn't come in on a rope, um, which they usually don't, then I can make any adjustments because I've got that topographic feature, that rise null or swale to, to work with. But on that elk, I just remember him, you know, he was downhill from me. And I got this topo feature in front of me, but I thought about several things. And that was one, I needed an escape route. If the bull came in, hung up, 
that I was able to walk back off of that spot and have an escape route to reposition myself in the event he didn't come in, then I could escape, move across the hill, reposition, and try him in a different spot. Because, you know, a cow elk sitting there cow calling from one spot and staying in that one spot, just we've all tried that. It usually doesn't work. Every once in a while it does, but, you know, those are those those situations are seem to be, you know, less frequent. But I remember setting up on that spot and uh, I had a, you know, utilized a very large, uh, you know, tree in front of me, big fir tree in front of me so that I could stand right behind the fir tree. And depending on which side he was going to come out, I had, you know, complete mobility to move. Well, the bull came in and stopped at about 60 yards and I could just see him sitting there and, uh, you know, at 60 yards and he was definitely, you know, hot and he bugled his way up. And then as soon as he turned around and went back down the hill, I just remember having that escape route of being able to go, okay, he's not going to come into this spot, but I backed up, moved across side hill because I was well concealed, dropped in exactly to where he had just been and was able to pull him back in using kind of a, you know, cow calling and glunking. And he came back in on a rope. And again, I set up on a topo feature, but you know, it seems like rarely when I've been successful, has it been the first location that I stop and call from? Mm-hmm. It's I almost always have to reposition to create that illusion of moving L. And it's typically a situation where I've got a cow of interest and, a, you know, a cow-bull combo. And that bull, I create a situation of urgency for that bull to come back in. But, you know, it seems like it's always, there's almost always a reposition that takes place. And that's a big tip, I think, Uh you know, for, for folks listening is, you know, be thinking about your mobility. If you're pinned down, you don't have too many options. He's going to sit there and stare at the bush where the cow call sounds coming from. And he'll stand there and check it out from about, you know, as far away as he can. And then he'll lose interest, walk back down the hill and the gig is up. Usually, you know, the element of, you know, a rare and unique opportunity is kind of evaporated at that point. No, that's textbook. That's exactly what happens. So providing yourself some options Having, you know, basically being cognizant that you cannot put yourself in a pin down situation. I love that you said using the terrain and having an escape route, so to speak, to put yourself into several different positions. And, you know, there's a whole art to calling solo. I've tried to talk on it quite a bit on some of my Q&A videos, but it has nothing to do with standing still when you're calling solo. You're doing twice the work, but it's it's pretty fun, too. So what's when you're calling with a partner, kind of there's so many tips out there, but like let's just get to I like talking about the mistakes that you made early on calling and maybe some guys will like catch on quicker going oh shit I do that I need to stop doing oh. that. so what are some of the mistakes guys do early on on calling tips that they should stop doing walking backwards you know trying to drag an elk back you know like moving yeah. up locating the bull you know and then yeah. you hear the bull bugle and you're like okay you're the shooter you stay here and then you walk back and start calling and you know, this is one that it sounds so stupid simple when we say it on a podcast like this, but that moving up and, and locating and then walking back and calling from further away, you just pulled yourself out of the red zone. You're no longer relevant. You know, as soon as you move back, you think, oh, I'm going to move back 50 yards, 80 yards, whatever it is. We're going to drag, we're going to drag him right past you. That works on the Primos videos because they've got like five callers back there and, you know, just a super horny bull, yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> But we watch that on television, and it, it just seems to me it doesn't work like that because as soon as you move back, you become less relevant. 
And I've tried over the years dragging elk back, and it's great for keeping them vocal and entertaining them because now you're at a safe distance and they can bugle. You can cow call and vice versa, and then eventually you'll start bugling, yeah. and he'll keep bugling. But actually getting them to come in and becoming relevant is really hard when you do that. So any more, I'd say, as you know, my hunting partner and I have you know, gained more and more experience, we typically like to stay tighter we stay together and we can also communicate a lot better. We don't carry any radios or anything like that. We've just found it would be a real distraction. So we can communicate a lot quicker if we're direct line of sight, you know, and we set up, you know, a little bit better on those topo features. Uh, we, you know, we could also cow call and compliment each other and sound like multiple elk. And again, create, you know, I'm a big list, big fan of elk nut. If you can tell, um, I just think he's a great, Dude's a great teacher. Creating a situation that doesn't exist is really the root of what you're doing. If you're just an elk, that's not quite enough. If you create a situation, now you essentially you've uh, you've catalyzed uh, you've catalyzed a situation that requires some urgency on the bull's part. So if there's a cow in heat, you know, and you've got raking and you've got some type of glunking or bull calling cow bugle, uh, you know, where there's you know. A, a couple of sounds in a couple of different locations that are close enough to be relevant. I think that you, you increase your odds and the volatility of the bull seems to increase as well. The vol, you know, an elk just bugling back at you a lot of times is not necessarily a, kill, a killable elk, but that volatility gets much greater when you are more relevant and you're closer. And a couple of times I've just found that like the one, I think I mentioned this about the one bull where I saw him come into a particular spot and then he went back down the hill well, once I got to that spot that he had been, he felt that that was safe terrain, and he immediately came back in. He was like, hey, I was just there, and it was appeared safe, and immediately comes back in. So multiple callers, um, staying tighter together, um, being able to communicate better, we just found that to be much more effective. Um, and then solo, solo calling, constantly being on the move. Man, there's some definite risk and reward there. I'm probably at fault of being, you know, like, like a lot of guys at fault of being too aggressive. Yeah. I wish I'd be at once I'm in that red zone. I wish I was more patient. 15 to 20 minutes to a hunter is eternity. 15 to 20 minutes for an elk is a blink of an eye. You know, I've, I've been able to sit there and watch them and, you know, watch them looking for me. And my God, those big animals are patient. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if any, any of that, you know, resonates with you, Dan, or your experience. But, uh, you know, once you're in that red zone, you've, you've got to be you got to be willing to be patient. Dude, that's awesome. I mean, these are just great things. Now, I don't have a lot of uh, experience hunting with people calling success-wise. I've just – I found most of my success going solo. And, you know, probably because I'm pretty particular on who I'd hunt with as far as I've, – I've talked about this before. But I just go at a different pace than some guys and I don't need a lot of sleep for the month of September. Literally don't need it. Um, I pay the price in October. What is it about, I don't know who you hunt with, but I know you have a partner. Like, how did you meet your partner or, or what is some good advice for someone to look into a legit hunting partner when it comes to the elk woods? Because that can make or break a hunt. Yeah, it's a dude. It's just like a marriage, dude. I mean, there's so much give and take. And and uh, for my hunting partner is number one. Um, I've got one guy that I hunt most of the time with, my buddy Connor. And uh, I, I hunt with, you know, one, one other guy like a little bit, but, uh, you know, with, with he and I, I mean, it's shared values. You know, we love the wilderness. We don't have, you know, no ego based on, you know, success. If we don't get an elk, we don't get an elk. So we, our egos don't inflate and deflate based on whether we succeed or not. We want to have an, 
number one, a top-notch wilderness hunting experience where we give it our all. We come home beat up, bruised, sore, and, and shut out. You know, that's how it was, but we value a lot of the same things, and that's just that, you know, that remote wilderness experience pursuing help. You know, just pure, pure wilderness experience. We want things quiet. We don't want to see other people. We spend most of our, almost all of our time off trail. You know, so we, you know, we bushwhack, we like cross country, we get off trails immediately. In fact, we don't even park a trailhead some of the time. I mean, we just, you know, we can park on a road and go. And that might mean a you know, wilderness hunt where we just don't use, literally don't use trails. Um, it's slower, but we find a lot of quirky little spots that a lot of folks don't do, I think. But the hard, you know, the, the hard work, you know, my buddy was a hotshot firefighter for like a bazillion years, um, like 10 years or something like that. So he's really, I joke, he's really comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and that's wet, cold, bruised, you know, mashed up feet. I watched that dude tape his feet, like his toes and stuff. I'm like, God, that's gotta be really painful. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I don't have foot issues like he does, but there's, you know, he, you know, for him, you know, we're, you know, really different. I'm like five, nine, 170 pounds. And he's like six, three, 235 pounds. <laughs> and so we're like, you know, we're like, you know, kind of antonyms of each other. I move a little bit lighter and quicker. And, uh, you know, I'm like, you know, marathon runner and, you know, he's an offensive lineman. <laughs> yeah. But we, he doesn't struggle to carry, you know, you know, a hundred pounds on his back. <laughs> so we complement each other really well, but for, for, him, we're a good example that two guys, you know, from completely different, you know, physical statures can hunt together and cover massive amounts of wilderness country, you know, just because he's a grinder, he works really hard, you know, he can carry weight, you know, climbs over deadfall like a champ, all that kind of stuff. But you have to have shared values. You have to be looking to get the same things out of the hunt. Um, you know, otherwise you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have a symbiotic relationship that's give and take, you know, if, if he misses a shot or gets a shot, you know, I'm equally as happy for him. And, and I wholeheartedly mean that, you know, we don't care who scores or whose turn it is or anything else. We just kind of know, you know, who's up to bat, you know, how to work it, you know, what to do. And, and, uh, you know, I run out of food sometimes and he doesn't, he runs out of food sometimes and I don't, we share and, <laughs> uh, we're both okay drinking coffee with pine needles and leftover top ramen in it. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, that's kind of the test. You know, when you got moss and pine needles in your coffee, if the guy bitches about it, that's not a, that's not a potential hunting partner for me. <laughs> there it is. That's a uh, filter right there. Yeah, there's a filter. You got to be able to live dirty, man. Uh, so, you know, that's, you know, for us, we're, we're very different, but, you know, I wouldn't hunt with anybody else. So he's just great dude. Um, but yeah, very different. But again, it's like shared values. Like we think the same stuff, school, the same views, the same giant tree. You're like, Holy crap. Look at that tree. I got to take a picture of that <laughs> Yeah. without annoying hunting partner, you know, like, you know, that's just a cool part of the trip. Yeah. But yeah. Shared, shared give and take. Man. Those little quirks need to be, you know, stuff that you guys appreciate about each other. Dude, you've dropped some pretty good elk knowledge. I definitely want, I just want to talk more about elk hunting really with you because I know that you've just got so much knowledge to drop, but I try to keep these under an hour. So I do have to, we have to sneak a little bit away from the elk hunting tips and, but I want to get into more of the shit that I just get after is the discipline, the fitness and building mental toughness, all those intangibles that basically you got 11 months to do something about it. I know a little bit about your background, ultra marathoner, but give us a breakdown as to 
not only your philosophy, but what you actually do, whether it be nutrition or training or whatever it takes to get mentally stronger the other 11 months out of the year in the name of better elk hunting. Well, I, I got into pretty serious distance running there for a while. Um, I was told that if I could just run ultra marathons, I'd kill more elk. And uh, the two definitely aligned with one another. Um, it's not the only way. It's it, it's really not the, like, whether you can run a long ways, that's ridiculous. Um, it's just about building that, that diligence to be better every day and hold yourself accountable, you know, hold yourself accountable and hold yourself to a higher standard. And that comes with your diet, your work ethic, getting out of bed. Um, if you're going to do something like, you know, competitive crossfitting, you know, or whatever it is, I don't care if you're a swimmer or whatever, if you've got a couple of goals and you have to hold yourself, you know, to that standard, chances are you're not staying up late drinking, you're eating well, you're taking care of yourself, and you have the diligence to, to do all of the things that are required to support that goal. And if that goal is to, you know, be a, a more fit hunter so that you can be successful or frankly, just enjoy your hunts more, you know, and be able to go, Hey, let's go to that mountaintop. Okay. I'm game. Great. And not kill yourself on the way up. Whatever you do for fitness that, you know, there's a lot of different approaches that a person can take. If that's your goal, you're going to have to fully support it with your diet, your sleep, um, simply taking care of your body, things like stretching. Um, and then all the little stuff that goes beyond that from, you know, I, I kind of go all in, man. I fall asleep in bed looking at topo maps of places I've never been to and may never go to at night. <laughs> um, but when you have that that goal, it seems like all of the little things that go towards it, they're, they're, it's a conglomeration of effort. And so if you're into ultramarathon, great. If you're into you know CrossFit, great. If you're into swimming or whatever it is, wh- whatever that is, chances are if you – if you're diligent about it and you do it every day, everything's going to fall in place from shooting your bow and everything else. So I, I went running for quite a few years. Now I'm kind of tapering off of that just cause I, I kind of went there, did it and, uh, you know, had some success, definitely found out what I was made of or what I'm capable of right now. I'm, you know, as far as fitness goals, I'm kind of in between stuff. I'm still a little bit of a runner. I'm still doing some, you know, home circuit training. For me personally, I do. I get really bored really easy with different stuff. So I do a lot of mix of uh, running and home circuit training. I got a pretty good home gym, uh, but I think you know one of the simplest things that I do that helps me not lose my edge is I got just a really burly home pull up bar, uh, both at my office and in my home. I got a really good garage gym at home, and uh, that thing you just. You don't walk by it without, you know, ripping out some reps. And uh, on those days where I've got long work days or whatever else, you can always find time to do some, you know, some bar exercises, you know, all sorts of different, you know, different types of pull-ups or ab exercises and things. So for the busy guy, uh, that's a big advantage. Uh, just having a good pull-up bar accessible all the time and not ignoring it. I think that's a really quick way for people who are, you know, run busy lives with kids and jobs and things like that to to maintain fitness, especially for your, you know, spine, abdomen, everything. I think your body holds together really well when you can do something on the bar every single day. Right now we're kind of in the the winter months, so I'm not running a ton, but I do an elliptical trainer in the morning, you know, watch Netflix and do circuit training in addition to that, be it planks, pull-ups, you know, the go-to grinder workout for me, like when I feel like a chump and I'm like, man, I'm getting soft. I'm like, 200 burpees and you're like okay just grind it out it's simple rainless uh it's brutal um you know the first hundred are kind of your you know slow you know you warm up slow 
and then you do the next hundred for time. And uh, to me, everybody has time for that workout. That does not take a lot of time, and anybody can do it. <laughs> uh, so if you can't get to the gym, the 200 burpee thing for me is kind of my benchmark. When uh, I feel like I'm getting a little sloppy, I go back to that. The other one for me is, you know, I, I do a lot of guiding and outfitting, and so I travel a lot. And so I don't get to a regular gym. Uh, you know, I travel for work so much, and I still guide quite a bit. The other one's 150 chirpies. Um, you know, you're, you're like, oh, I don't got time for much, but I can start that slow, warm up easy, and you can do that. That's going to be a killer workout for me. That's another one that, you know, I think for, you know, people who can't get to the gym regularly, whatever their schedule is, maybe it's just a season of their life. That's another one, too, that, that, that I personally rely on when I'm starting to you know, feel like I, you know, I need to get back to some basics, I guess. Uh, and then as far as diet and stuff, uh, you know, it's, there's so much good information out there. I don't think there, you know, anybody really has an excuse not to eat clean anymore. If you care about a goal, and that goal is to be you know, a more efficient hunter and enjoy your wilderness hunts more, um, you know, there's so much information on clean eating, you know out there that uh I, I really can't speak to that i mean there's just so much good information you know re- regarding that eggs and oatmeal every day for breakfast for me for the most part protein with maca and turmeric root in it for quick shake them up smoothie i don't even need to use a blender for that yeah uh drink that on my way to work take some vitamins you know hit the mountain ops yeti uh pre-workout uh if i'm gonna do you know if i need some pump up other than that i don't know what to say i mean you know, just don't be sloppy. Don't, don't drink too much beer. Don't overeat. Those 150 chirpies, that's a burpee to a chin-up, right? That's what you're calling those? Yes. That's no joke, man. That's legit. I'm not doing that all the time, though. That's one where you're like, you know you've been lazy. You know, you're like, you're like oh, we need some discipline. You're like, yeah. okay, 150 chirpies, and it's a grind, man, but you can get through it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, for, you know, necessarily for time, but you get through that, and you're like, okay, you know. You know, we're, we're, we're leveled again, right? Yeah. Rent is <laughs> due. 150 trippies go. Well, Joe, like, what about, like, you don't have to be in shape. And, and I am the first one to admit this. You really don't have to be in shape to hunt the mountains. But you cannot be a mental little person. I don't think I can say midget on this thing. But you have to be a mental giant. So how can people utilize this fitness part to build mental toughness? Because at the end of the day, I'd rather hunt with somebody who's just mentally sharp, not faded by all the bad things that go on and all the valleys because there's very few peaks in hunting, especially with a bow. How are you building this mental toughness? I know you weren't born with it. I sure as wasn't. Like, How are you doing that? Well, the, the so here's something I want to leave listeners with. Fitness is like, you know, and I, I say these things on this podcast like I'm perfect or something. Shoot, I'm not. I mean, I'm freaking, I'm, you know, as uh, susceptible to, to, you know, stumbling as much as their next guy on missing workouts and eating pizza and that kind of stuff. But fitness is like brushing your teeth. You know, brushing your teeth, you know it's good for you. You know you need to do it in order to take care of yourself, and so you brush your teeth. And fitness, I'm not going to pretend I just wake up every morning. I'm like, hey, let's do a bunch of burpees. That's not really how it works. I'm like, I got to do some burpees, man. I'm like, I got to get this done. I got to go for a run. I got to, you know, I got to get, a, a, you know, some circuit training in. It's like brushing your teeth. And it's it's more about the consistency and discipline. You don't, I mean, workouts don't have to be long, but they you need to be disciplined and take care of yourself if you, if you want to enjoy the same highs that, 
the guy who is, you know, if you can eliminate fitness from the equation, you know, get yourself in shape and that way it's one less thing you got to worry about. My, uh, you know, my hunting partner, again, he's the opposite of me. You talk about being mentally sharp. There are so many skills that go into being a successful backcountry hunter. And, you know, for like he and I are different, you know, he brings skills to the table that guys can learn and it's complimented by fitness. The dude's in great shape, but he doesn't move like I do, but he's, his navigation is incredible. I mean, he's just an amazing backcountry navigator. He can glance at a GPS and topo map and tell me what's growing on that hill and that we're going to take a different route because there's going to be too much blowdown, even though we've never been there before. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of skills that, that go into being a backcountry hunter. Fitness isn't the only one, but I, I think it speaks to the discipline that people have. Is If they're really interested in it and they care about it, they're going to make an effort to do all of the little things that go into a hunt. You know, They're going to make sure that they're, you know, they're a good navigator, they're a good map interpreter, they've scouted well. They've prepared for the pack out. You know, they've got their, you know, a couple of different plans laid out in the event they shoot elk in different places. And maybe that's having buddies, you know, that can pack, you know, knowing an outfitter or having your own, your own stock like I do. You know, there's, there's definitely a lot of components. But I think if you can't get just a little bit of fitness into it, you're probably not going to be very successful with those other things either. All right, man. Well, let's transition to like the last part, which is, you know, I'm kind of the most excited about is the entrepreneurial spirit that you have being you know a guy who's 38 sounds like you're pretty successful you definitely have enough time to do all the hunting that you want to get done or at least all of washington's elk season and you're out you're traveling the world and stuff like that man i talk on this podcast about discipline as it pertains to fitness and delayed gratification as it pertains to elk hunting but we both talked about the autonomy of your time being one of the number one things for a successful elk hunter but discipline with your finances and the financial freedoms and stuff like that. Walk us through your philosophy on how guys could be more inspired or or any little nuggets of information on things that you have done now that you're 38, going on 39, that uh, you've done professionally, that you've learned as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, that could maybe help some of maybe the younger guys listening that, you know, maybe just got their first credit card or they bought that awesome new truck, but they didn't pay cash for it. And they're going to start making some dumb decisions that we've all done. Uh, let's talk about that kind of stuff real quick. Um, you know, for, I think just stay, you know, you know, everybody, you know, you really have to be, keep yourself grounded, obviously, in order to be successful for me. Yeah. You know, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and savior. And for me, that has solved like, I didn't come to to God until later in life. But for me, that made so many other things in my life just fall into place and got so much easier once I accepted God. So I didn't grow up in church or anything like that. That came much later. But for me, it was like once that happened, like my professional life, my family life, my marriage, everything else started to make so much more sense. And, uh, you know, the decisions at work that I had to make in order to direct our business, you know, became much more clear. Um, yeah. My marriage became so much easier because I understood what it was, you know, what it took and meant to be the supportive husband and father. And so, you know, the, you know, making sure that I met my marriage came first, you know, in an order of operations, you know, marriage first, you know, obviously God, marriage first, then work came third. Once my marriage, you know, you know, I never, we never had any real rough spots, but it's never perfect. It's not always been perfect. But once, once I had God leading my life and directing my life and I became the husband that I was supposed to be getting, 
hunting time became a lot easier because my wife began to understand me better and know that I needed that. And I need that every fall in order to complete myself spiritually. I need that escape. I need that time away. I need that wilderness trip. I need to hunt. So, you know, taking care of your marriage, um, you know, getting yourself grounded spiritually, whatever that might be for somebody. Uh, it made my work decisions a lot easier and our business, it seemed to me, at least my, you know, my understanding of it, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't asked my business partners this, but my success at work became a lot better once that happened because I started to make every decision towards a greater good and was much less selfish and more giving and my leadership, you know, with my staff, I feel like it improved exponentially, began to care about people more, lead them better and take them in a direction that was, um, you know, maybe a lot of my younger staff, I hired tons of guys in their early twenties, um, coming out of college, you know, a lot of them in college yeah. and they may not work here, um, at reds forever, but they're going to work here for a period of time. And I really began to take it serious that if they're going to work here, I want to leave them with all the skills and the right leadership as to what an adult man dad is supposed to look like and do. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't sound too corny, No, but when I started to do that, I, we began to be able to recruit and hire and maintain better staff. And I'm not attributing all of our successor work certainly to me, but uh, it seems like for me and the guys that, that I direct and hire and lead, our business began to improve and begin to thrive for many, many reasons in addition to those. You get yourself grounded spiritually, take care of your family, you know, and the work decisions um, that you have to make, the strategies, the maneuvers and things like that. I tend to I tend to win a lot higher percentage of those now than I was say ten years ago, um, and you know a lot of that's attributed to just business experience. But you know if those things can be helpful for somebody. The other thing that you know help our businesses, um, I got into YouTube you know instructional videos uh, a long time ago. Right, I mean like two thousand seven. You know back when YouTube is I mean a drop of what it is today. And uh, I joked that I was one of the only guys that had kids in a mortgage at the time. So I was willing to, to get on video and put myself out there and explain things and promote things. But a lot of other guys didn't want the, you know, kind of the, the scrutiny of their peers of being on video. And uh, now I've got a YouTube channel with like 6 million views uh, or something like that. It's a lot. And we've been successful. And that's really been the umbilical cord of our e-commerce business is being able to to go, yeah, I might look like a cheesehead a lot of the time, but I'm willing to get on there for the betterment of our business and, and to support my career. I'm willing to get on there. No hype, you know, no baloney, just good instructional information and hopefully, you know, a neophyte or even a, you know, an intermediate or perhaps an advanced, you know, fisherman might, you know, learn from. Yeah. And uh, that really catapulted us, you know, in our e-commerce business. But just being able to go, yeah, you know what, I, yeah, I gotta, you know, I, I, I gotta answer the comments. There's always some haters out there, and you oh, know, yeah. I guess when you start getting, when you start getting critics, it means you made it, I suppose. But uh, you know, being able to put yourself out there and um, and be subject to some criticism, I think, is another really important thing that that helped give our business enough success for them me to be able to have the latitude to pursue, you know, my other dreams and passions of, of hunting and other recreation. Yeah. I like that. I mean, 2007 is early for YouTube and I liked everything you said there. I mean, that's just, that's perfect. I will end with that, but I mean, <laughs> I wish you lived closer, but Ellensburg's not too far. Um, I hope to meet you in person and, and definitely maybe even share a campfire someday, but 
I love everything. We kind of shotgunned a bunch of good stuff in here, and, and I this is what Elk Shape's all about to me is, man, I, I wanted to operate this podcast just to help people on the learning curve get them inspired and get them excited to go find the best version of themselves. And I feel like you dropped knowledge bombs left and right, man. So where can dudes and ladies find you on the World Wide Web as far as uh, either your website or YouTube channel or social media? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Red's Fly Shop, we're an outfitter in the Yakima Canyon. Um, our, you know, our primary business is, you know, fly fishing outfitting, and that's both in the Pacific Northwest and all over the world. You know, I mentioned we do a lot of uh, travel planning for folks that want to go do that bucket list trip in some faraway place. We do a ton of upland bird hunting. Um, we have a 15,000-acre ranch here adjacent to the property, and we're looking at other ranches for upland bird hunting, and we do uh, we do mule deer hunting as well. Um, not a lot of that. You know, that's definitely not why I'm mentioning it. It's just what we do. But see us at redsflyshop.com. Um, we have a fancy resort here in Ellensburg. It's great, you know, very family-oriented, outdoorsman-oriented place where they can come, you know, park mama and the kids at the pool. You know, dad can go shoot some shotguns and go fly fishing. Uh, but you can see us at redsflyshop.com. Uh, we also have Instagram, redsflyshop. And uh, follow us on Facebook. You know, see what we do. If anybody uh, listening to this podcast uh, lives in the Northwest, uh, we're very relevant to what you do. Uh, follow us, Red Fly Shop, on Facebook, and uh, you can see all about what we're doing all the time. And uh, I operate all the social media channels, so there's some, you know, I, I try to mix in the hunting stuff uh, with fishing stuff all the time. That's awesome. Do you, uh, where can people see pictures of these awesome bulls that I saw? Is it on Facebook or? <laughs> Yeah, this is no, gonna be you're going to get them texted. You're going to get them texted to you from your buddy. Okay. So you're going to have to email me one picture that I can show, but you have, you can, okay. it could be a raghorn for all I care, but just, I want something, um, your favorite elk hunting picture or whatever, just so people know, I will vouch for you. I've seen the bulls. Uh, that's why you're on this basically. Cause I'm all about those blue collar dudes that not necessarily are sponsored or in the hunting industry will have a kind of an agenda or don't hunt very much public. That's not me. I'm going, we're going to like the end users and the end users are the ones that buy the products and they're the guys that hunt the public land and the wildernesses like you and hopefully they listen to this and get inspired to learn how to bivouac hunt because it's a huge advantage it's scary it's intimidating but if i can do it and joe can do it anyone can do it right yeah we'll just work hard you know have the right goal in mind and the killing will take care of itself cool joe well uh we'll wrap this up man i appreciate you coming on i'm gonna hit uh turn this thing off but i'll talk to you here in a second 